This is a Rooster Teeth production. For as long as humans have traveled unbattled on the sea, there have been stories of weapons capable of laying waste to ship and sailor alike. Are they real? Do they work? And did they shape the course of history? That was really good. I just, I think you said traveled on battled. That's fine. Tra- traveled and battled. Yeah, I, I mean, like, we don't have to redo it. I the just, audience knows what I meant. Well, they know now because I told them. They know my brain. They know my brain. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, you guys have been rocking with us, so you understand when Patrick is supposed to say and instead of on. Anyway, I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. Ahoy and welcome aboard ship. It's the fan podcast about some of no, 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 we gotta, we gotta slow down. Our episodes are too short. We gotta slow down. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Ahoy and welcome aboard ship hits the fan, a podcast about some of history's most notable and wait, nope. <laughs> most notable uh-ohs and whoopsies on the high seas. Oh, there we is. I'm Charlotte. There we again. Is. There he is. Yeah. And I'm still Patrick. As ever. Yeah. <laughs> we are in a different space uh, yeah. today. So if if we seem a little bit off. Um, Bear with us. We changed offices. So we are kind of getting the new studio set mm-hmm. up still so and we have uh, microphones are different <laughs> the and, mics uh, are different and i'll say it we are different yeah we've changed we've as well changed. um but still going to be recording yeah might be a few episodes here where things are a little a little off but uh <laughs> we should we should be back to normal pretty soon but so what what you know, what is normal yeah right sure whatever <laughs> yeah okay charlotte so you didn't write an intro i see today well, Do you care to freeform one? I, I was confused about whether we were doing those for the bonus episodes. Yeah, we I do the intros, we just don't do the... Honorable mentions. Yeah. Well, well, I can, I can, this is I the can fourth the season cuff. we're going into. I can do this off the cuff. All right, well, let's It's not a problem. This is only, I mean, it's the third round of bonus right. episodes, so give me a break. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Whenever you're ready. Yep. Okay. Archimedes, Archimedes. What hath thou route? What round shapes have you divined today, my mathematician friend? Who would have thought that in the medal of war against uh, arrow and uh, uh, and um, might that math would would be would would reign supreme in the seas? Okay. Um, and um, uh, and thus I call upon. Ye, mm-hmm. thee, thou, so, yeah. to to um to understand and and, and use you know um uh, oh, like, hold on let me yeah, yeah. let me back up a little bit a mirror to reflect upon there we go yeah much like the surface of the sea uh huh or a mirror to reflect onto someone the dark nature of death man. what portends oh, okay. de- death portends yeah. Today's episode, if anything, <laughs> proves that uh, math, while for nerds, can sometimes, in be very cool, rare yeah. situations, be pretty cool. Sometimes math is cool. Uh, well, math is, I guess math is never cool, but sometimes its applications in weaponry can be cool, is what we're saying. Uh, yeah, well, I guess mathematicians, never cool. Never cool. Never cool. Never cool. Never cool. But sometimes they're inventions. Yes. Kinda, sometimes they're needed. Sometimes they're hypothetical inventions that may or may not have some, ever some existed. Some of math's greatest inventions, like uh, weapons of uh, seafaring war mm-hmm. or um, 
the smart TV yep. can be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So today we're talking about some weapons that may or may not have been real and may or may not have uh, shifted the tide, like tide. Like, yeah. Yeah. Of uh, uh-huh. various battles, uh-huh. powers yeah. that, that uh, were at one time. Talking about Archimedes. We're talking about Archimedes. Well, let's start with Archimedes anyway. Okay. And uh, his death ray. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, yeah. I'm interested. Oh, yeah. I would like to subscribe to your newsletter. So what better way, you may ask, to win a battle at sea than by simply never leaving the shore in the first place? Uh, that's cool. Yeah. Thus was the allure of what has come to be known as Archimedes' death ray, an enormous concave mirror capable of reflecting sunlight and directing it out to sea, burning ships to ash before they ever made it into port. That's that was sick. A, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's cool. It's very cool. See, my way to sink a ship from the shore is mm-hmm. to infiltrate the mind of a sailor while, they've, while they're on shore oh, okay. leave. Yeah, sure. And turn him against his crew. Uh, so that was the plan anyway. But the Archimedes in question is Archimedes of Syracuse, not to be confused with all the other Archimedes running around at oh, the time. Oh, Cues. I think there was- Go orange. I think there was one other note. I think there's another Archimedes that has a uh, Wikipedia page from kind of the same time period. Yeah. But not of note. I mean, this is the Archimedes that we're, you're talking about. Right, this is the, the Archimedes. This is the Archimedes, Well, yeah. I would assume there were a bunch of Archimedes running around. Yeah, Ar- but most of them were nobodies, losers. Yeah, lost to the books of history. Lost to the books of history. <laughs> the anal. Sounds like they weren't lost the, in the books of history. But, well, yeah. who reads? Yeah, yeah. Right? We're all we're listening people now. Yes. So Archimedes was born in 287 BC in Syracuse, Sicily. This is before modern-day Italy. This is actually what the Roman Empire called Magna Graecia. Basically translates to Greater Greece. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it sounds good to me. I, I don't think it's up to me to judge the Romans' naming conventions. No, no, no. At the time, the coast of southern Italy, we're talking bottom of the boot here. The heel. Yep. Or maybe well, not the no. heel, just <laughs> the, the bottom. Yeah, the, yeah, the bottom. Yeah. Either way, the bottom. Along with coastal regions of Calabria, Apulia, Basilicata, Campania. I don't think that's... And, I said it right. <laughs> I don't think so. And the island of Sicily were all considered to be Greek, but living under Roman rule. The populations of most of these regions were largely Greeks, who had settled in the area 600 years before and essentially created a little mini-Greece within Rome. Did you make a... A mini-Greece within Rome? No. no. I don't think I could. I don't think it, it's tough to do these days. Okay, first of all, don't no, I count yourself out. I think you could do anything you put your heart to, Patrick, including creating Magna Grecia. I'm neither Greek nor Roman. I don't know if they'd have me. Well, famously, most people who have played Roman emperors are neither. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. Rome typically would let their territories be as long as they received their taxes, so Magna Grecia was allowed to flourish for hundreds of years. In 287 BC, when Archimedes was born, Rome was still large and in charge, but he was raised culturally Greek. Again, yeah, I I agree. It's not for me to really... Okay. Uh, Many of the details of Archimedes' life are vague. In some contexts, one of his... In some texts. In some texts, one of his contemporaries, Heracleides... Heracleides. 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 Heracleides? Heracleides, right? I don't know. Who cares? These people are long dead. In some texts, one of his contemporaries, Heracleides... 
is said to have written a biography of his life, but all complete copies have been lost. That's pretty tight. Yeah. To have your boys love you so much that they write a story, a book about your life. Do we know that they were boys? This might have just been somebody looking just on a contemporary? from afar. Yeah. He said, this guy needs a book. Maybe, I mean, it's possible, but if in, uh, you know, well, these episodes, yeah. they're in between. They're not, we don't have to play by the rules. Most books ever written were lost to time. Lost to the books of history. Yes. <laughs> Most of what we know is from Archimedes' own writings. From these texts, we know he was a brilliant mathematician for his time. Ooh. Yeah, so a nerd. <laughs> he was a leading scientist, not only in the region, but recognized in his own lifetime as far away as Alexandria, Egypt. Mm. Yeah, he was known all the way from Sicily to Egypt. It's as big as the world was back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm pretty big in Sicily. Aren't those they just actually like, know about me in Italy. Uh, if you're wondering, yes, both of those countries are on the same sea, the Mediterranean Sea. They're not that far apart geographically. As Still- far away as um, <laughs> New Mexico yeah, <from> California. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Look, for the time. Pretty impressive. That's a far, that's a long ways. Some of his correspondence survived, and he was known to be in contact with other scholars all across the Mediterranean and modern-day Northern Africa. This included the head of the library in Alexandria, one of the world's oldest known collections of knowledge. Something I love about like old correspondence, uh, or ancient, very old correspondence, is that you know that these guys, because they were like well-read and studied, there were also what would have been jokes between them, that if they were, you know translated and relayed to us right now would not read at all as anything even remotely funny no. like everything every single piece of context is missing but it's yes. like so we see here when he calls the other man's wife uh, a pigeon mm-hmm. this is actually quite funny in the time yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> great sure <laughs> okay. i guess so Archimedes is considered the father of modern calculus again boo, boo. as well as many geometric theorems He's credited with being one of the first to calculate the area, surface area, and volume of not only strap in <laughs> spheres, mm. ellipses, uh. parabolas, uh. and spirals. Whoa. Yeah. We wouldn't have any shapes without him. Well, at least not the round ones. No. <laughs> or the parabolas. That's round two. Prior to working on the death ray, <laughs> Archimedes had already developed catapults that could be used on ships and a massive sea weapon known colloquially as harpagi, which translates to snatcher. <laughs> yeah. Most people today know When he it, called his friend's wife a snatcher. That was actually funny. That was actually quite humorous. She liked it too. Yeah. Most people know it today as the claw of Archimedes. This... Is actually very cool. This is extremely, extremely sick. It's pretty self-explanatory. Literally a giant claw fitted to a tower. Yep. That's it. Yep. So like you have these like coastal cities that have giant walls built around them. Of course. And then on like the top of the wall, you would just have a, Gra- a snatcher. enormous claw snatcher. Yeah. yeah. The big snatcher of Archimedes. It is like a crane machine for ancient naval warfare. Do you think um, that, you know, Archimedes seems to be pretty adept at... Uh, sinking ships off mm-hmm. in the sea that anyone ever called them Sharkimedes. Not that sharks sink ships, but sort of like a waterborne predator. I get it. I get yeah. it. Um, maybe the shark of the shark of the southern shark, Italy. The shark of Magna Grecia. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so Archimedes designed the claw as the primary defense for the city walls of Syracuse. 
One of the walls faced the sea, meaning it was susceptible to naval attacks. As I was saying, I would just make no walls face the sea. No, never. Archimedes, with his skills in geometry, was already incredibly adept at using cranes. Weird skill to have. He was known for his rudimentary pulley systems and ancient machinery already. The claw was simply the culmination of this knowledge. <laughs> but this it's such a this an easier time. Like you were you were one of the great geniuses of history if you knew how to build a claw. That's so cool. Uh, so there are different so there are differing historical accounts of what the claw actually looked like. Most historical most of them describe it as a gigantic crane with a type of grappling hook at the end. I've seen photos or like, you know, not photos, but renderings of what this might have looked like. Yeah. And it is pretty much just a claw machine. It's like a kind of an arm or whatever, like a, like a crane, like a big construction right. crane it, with a claw at the end. Right. Yes. It was said the Romans brought a giant stuffed jigglypuff <laughs> to bo- break a down the walls. Filled chibi- with soldiers. And lo, among the cheap trash was a PSP. (laughs) Which was basically impossible to get. (laughs) It's rigged, man, I'm (laughs) telling you. So the soldiers of Syracuse would crank the crane out over the ocean as ships pulled in close to the walls before engaging the grappling hook at the end of the crane. Now, one of two things would happen. Either the force of the grappling hook, you know, dropping onto a wooden ship (laughs) uh, would sink or capsize the boat. Yeah. Or the hook would connect and s- or the hook would connect and snatch the ship out of the water and drop it forcefully back into the waves. So sick. Yeah. This is so sick. Yeah. It also sounds fully made up. Yes. It sounds fake. However, according to mul- however, according to multiple documents of the time. Nope. However, according to documents of the time, these machines featured prominently in the Punic Wars. Multiple claws were installed along city's seaward walls that could support the weight of a boat. I, so, like these ones, not a myth. I don't even. These ones I don't were know what to pr- say. Probably real. Probably, seems like they yeah. were real. I mean, it seems like for a while there they would try anything. Yeah, just anything. Yeah. Well, warfare didn't really change that much for a very long time. Well, war, war never changes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Between the claws and the catapults, they made a pretty substantial dent in the Roman army, at least according to historians of the day. All right. <laughs> Get him. This seemed so suspicious, so far-fetched, that in 1999, a TV show on the BBC tested this kind of weapon to see if it was even possible. And because America steals all its best TV from the BBC, we tested it, we being America, and, and actually our corporate That's father, true, yeah. Uh, in 2005 on the Discovery Channel. How about that? Yeah. Within a week, the engineers on the show were able to build the claw, install it, and successfully test it on ships. Does not mean the claw existed exactly as described in history, but it does prove that it could have. It's technically possible. In 2022, a podcast, also part of the Discovery uh, corporate umbrella, Mm -hmm. said that it was true. Uh, And that's us? Yeah. Okay. We say it's real, and it happened as described. So, and, it, and it worked every time and definitely didn't kill a ton of people in operating and yeah, constructing yeah, of them. Of course. <laughs> uh, all of that, though, is not necessarily the case for the death ray. Oh. Yeah. There are multiple descriptions of the death ray and how it might have worked. The key to the function of the death ray is the same principle of refracting light that a magnifying glass uses to burn leaves or ants on a sidewalk. I would never. But you have. I mean, yeah, of I've seen you do it. 
to this day, you still, as an adult, every morning, <laughs> go out there and That's, fire off the I, ants. I'm chemically dependent glass. on burning ants with the, because <laughs> my right eye is so bad, I can just use my glasses. Yeah, yeah. The, the lens is so thick. Mm -hmm. Unlike the claw, there is no specific war or victory attributed to the death ray. People can't be sure if it was ever built or even nailed down a specific design. Some claim it could have been one giant concave mirror, but a mirror that large would be nearly impossible for artisans at the time to make, and the weight and size needed would crush anyone trying to wield it. I mean, I assume it's probably, it's probably on some sort on of a support thing. system that can turn. And well, it'd be funny if it was just like a couple a guys guy, trying yeah, to. A couple guys. Either way, though, incredibly heavy, very difficult. Surely someone would have died eventually by being crushed by one. Multiple mirrors is also a possibility, but how do you direct all of them fast enough and accurate enough? These two problems are exactly the same issues the Mythbusters team encountered when researching the death ray. Adam and Jamie. But they are not the only ones to have tested it. Well, surely the build, the build team had some sort of hand to play in this, <laughs> of course, right? I imagine, yeah, they must have. Yeah. In the 1970s, a Greek scientist tried to test it with 60 sailors. According to them, the ship caught fire in short order. Not did they live? Do you think? Uh, no, okay. I think that if you want to actually they died in the name of ancient science, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 30 years later, in the early 2000s, a team at MIT used 127 mirrors and ignited a mock up of a ship. So you can burn stuff, yeah. If you have a big enough mirror, you can definitely set a wooden ship on fire. It's, I think you should. I agree, yeah, as long as no one's on it, yeah. In 2010, the Mythbusters began their investigation along with a second team from MIT. They set up 300 replica mirrors of the time, setting them at specific angles and removing the likelihood for human error. They were able to ignite a ship at 75 feet away, leading them to the conclusion it was possible but impractical. Oh, man. Buster must have loved that. Oh, you know Buster loved you that. You know Buster was going crazy. That's the crash test dummy. Okay. The thing oh, yeah. Do you think he was on fire? <laughs> yeah, probably, you know, in oh, all likelihood, no. Buster was probably yeah, enshrouded in flames. When you search Mythbusters before typing anything else, Ancient Death Ray is one of the first things that comes up. My favorite Mythbusters myth was when they shot a cannonball into a residential neighborhood <laughs> and it went through someone's house. Oh my God. <laughs> Intentionally? No, they were in the desert doing some myth, mm -hmm. um, and it like basically the cannonball just like hit the ground, skipped off, and went into a community at the edge edge of the desert. Oh my! And God. just went through someone's house, like straight up Ooh. through the roof. It was crazy, just skipping around. Well, at least it was a desert community. <laughs> we can be thankful for that. I mean, this is probably the last time you'll hear us talk about deserts. Yeah, on this show. Yeah, but we apologize. Really not. It's not our bag. Very outside of what we do. Unless there's some sort of sand ship. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so the Mythbusters' main takeaway was that regardless of fire, the, reflect the reflected light made it nearly impossible for crew to see where they were going, which could have prompted more disasters than burning the ships. If you just <laughs> shine a light in everyone's it's just eyes. so bright. Wow. Just get that. 200 soldiers with watches kind of angling them towards the, yeah, laser pointers. Yeah, any cats on the ship are just yeah. tearing at the captain. Yeah, yeah. It's the holiday season, and if you weren't able to snag a room on that tropical cruise this year, we have the perfect alternative. Take a listen to Beneath, Rooster Teeth's first ever scripted horror podcast 
and feel like you're on the Arctic expedition of a lifetime in this immersive audio experience that delves into the mysteries left behind after the infamous sinking of the Titanic. Beneath follows a group of scientists, academics, and treasure hunters who descend to the ocean's depths to answer lingering questions around the most famous shipwreck in history and recover a fabled lost treasure sealed in the wreckage. What they find instead is an ancient force that should never have been disturbed. With chilling sound design and terror-filled twists and turns, Beneath is a claustrophobic underwater adventure that is best consumed in the dark with your headphones on. You can binge listen to the entire first season of Beneath ad-free on both Rooster Teeth First and Wondery Plus. Follow the links below to listen and sign up for a free trial. So it's likely that any success attributed to the use of the death ray may actually just have been crews unable to see and crashing their ships. Maybe since the crews couldn't see and they would crash their ships and the operating, uh, you know, the operators couldn't see either. They would like finally when their vision would clear up and there's no more ship, they're like, we burned it. I guess that we, we did burned it. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. It really went up quick. I don't even see any smoke. <laughs> so that's it. That's Archimedes uh, death ray. Okay. Real? Fake? Real. Real. Yeah. Agreed. Well, I mean, real. in some capacity, yes, it does seem it's real. Um, and this is the problem with, with, with warfare as it stands today. We need to go back to insane machinery. I agree. We need to have, we need to have a mathematician saying like, you know what we need to do is weaponize moss or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like I found a way to direct the wind through a series of tubes to uh, blow on the sails and steer it into the shoals. Yeah, yeah. None of this cannon stuff. No. No gun decks. Well, it's like those weapons. No rail that... guns. Well, actually, rail guns can stay. They're kind of sick. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if uh, if they've made them or not, but I know there's like a hypothetical weapon where you just drop something out of space on someone. <laughs> and it's not even like, it's not a bomb. There's no explosive. It's just a solid chunk of metal. On, and if it's some, like, on someone? Is it guided? No, no. I mean, like, just on a city. No, I know, but, but like, it's so the funny force, the way you said someone. Yeah. Like, you, like, one guy. But just the force of something... Re-entering the atmosphere. Re-entering the atmosphere yeah. is, like, devastating. You don't even... You don't need a nuke. You just you drop a piece of metal out of the out of space. You, you get an MLB pitch or just fire a cannon up into the stratosphere, and then yeah, when yeah. it comes down at the end of its arc, who does it hit? An enemy of the state. Wow. Madison Baumgartner steps up to the plate at the Pentagon, mm-hmm. which kind of looks like a plate. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess the batter. You know what? Never mind. Okay. Space, though. That's cool. Yeah. Up next, Greek fire. Ooh. Yeah. Is that a restaurant? Uh, it is, but it's also a hypothetical weapon. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know you've inspired an amazing weapon when literally any time your enemies come in contact with anything like it, they name it after you. Yeah, like the Patrick Fork. Exactly. <laughs> One of one of the many weapons I've invented. <laughs> the name would make you think that this was a weapon used by the ancient Greeks in their many notable sea battles of both history and myth. You would think that probably, right? I uh, yeah, I yeah, that. you'd be wrong. Oh, yeah. Okay, teach me. Greek fire, as we know it, was created by the Byzantine Empire, likely sometime between the seventh and eighth century A.D. Admittedly, this is still very, very old, but it is thousands of years after ancient Greece. Mm. So. You know, although the Greeks still around. Yeah, still kicking. Yeah, so. Modern though. Yeah. Faster. Uh, Also, they were far from the first to use weapons of this type. Theirs was just so lethal that they got to keep the name. Respect. Yeah. Well, they didn't really because it's called Greek fire. 
They're Byzantines. You know what? Moving on. Never mind. Incendiary weapons as a kind of genre of weapon Mm. have been in use for thousands of years. One of the first documented uses of these weapons was in the 9th century BC by the Assyrians. Their empire spanned much of what is now the Middle East. Again, thinking of that ship of sand. Something (laughs) to look into. Mm -hmm. But these weapons are not as sophisticated as Greek fire would be in later years. These are just things that are on fire, thrown at other things that are not on fire in the hopes that they will then become also on fire. Now that's interesting. Are you with me? Yeah, it sounds like Patrick's fire. Yes, exactly. Another weapon I, I've been tinkering with. I haven't perfected the formula <laughs> You've yet. You've been cooking something up down in the lab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they did have rudimentary catapults, and they would load up pots, fill them with accelerant, usually feces, cool, and either wood, paper, or alcohol or oil-soaked rags, and then load it up on the catapult and hope it hit something that was not stone, famously inflammable stone. Well, if you're not trying hard enough. Sure, <laughs> yes. <laughs> The end result was if you were in a building that, again, was not stone, now it smelled terrible and was possibly on fire. Huh. So we're See, getting somewhere. We don't need We're math. getting somewhere. We can just put some crap in a launcher. Yeah. You know, ignoring the, the parabolic nature of, of catapults and that math seems Parabolos. extremely. Yep. Archimedes, once yep. again, hitting it. <laughs> <We> did it. <laughs> the god Archimedes mm-hmm. refusing to stay dead. As they continued to develop these catapult feces bombs, they began adding more and more features like spikes and swinging weights to ideally also damage the inflammable stone. This also brings about the advent of archers firing flaming arrows. Notch! But then, in 424 BC, during the Peloponnesian War between Athens and the, and the Boeotians, oh wait, that's probably a city. But then in 424 BC, during the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Boeotia, a new version of this weapon appears. Let's talk a little bit about this battle. Please, I'm dying. The Athenians planned to attack the city of Delium based on some inside intel. What they didn't know is that their inside man had totally betrayed them, so the Boeotians knew they were coming. But also, a ton of Athenians got there way too early. So they just kind of stood around. Oops. And, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we're waiting on the rest of our party. And you can't um, just go to a coffee shop and wait. You're in yeah. full army gear. Yeah. You're clearly an invading force. There's, it's really hard to talk your way out of that one. Yeah. This is the importance of showing up on time. Mm-hmm. Or in your case, late. That was uncalled for. Can we continue with the script, please? <laughs> so they end up kind of waiting on the beach for the rest of the army, much like I find myself uh, waiting for you. I was in here alone waiting for you today. <laughs> I don't know about that. I do. Uh, I can't, we can't verify that. We don't have any way to verify that. The Athenians pretty quickly decide that this is a bad idea. This being standing around on the beach <laughs> waiting for the rest of their army to show uh, up. Oops. And they try to sail away. The Boeotians realize the Athenians are at a disadvantage and decide to attack. Eventually, the Athenian army gets there, takes over the temple, and sets up garrisons. And then they kind of start to leave thinking they've conquered enough, you know, Boeotia marshals an army to push them off once and for all, and yet again, poor planning on Athens' part helped them out. Oh. Yeah. Okay. See, the Athenians kind of set up camp without doing enough reconnaissance. So when the Boeotians started attacking, the Athenians ran until they saw what they believed was the rear of the Boeotian army. (laughs) What they didn't realize is it was the rear of their own army, and they had gone in a circle. Ah, again, Archimedes. (laughs) This is considered history's first documented use of friendly fire. (laughs) 
That's insane. You see the back of your own army and just start attacking? Like a dog. Yeah. <laughs> First documented use of friendly fire, but I mean, come on. It's happened. You're in a giant battle just swinging swords. There's no way you're not like taking off your boy's head at some point exactly, by accident. Exactly, yeah. And this is a, this is a, a beautiful... Um, we've seen it happen before and again. Oh, yeah. The Boeotians chased the Athenians back to their fort, which was on temple grounds. The Athenians refused to leave. No. Yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> we were here first. Thus begins a stalemate of two weeks. The Athenians hold up in the temple garrison, and the Boeotians being suspiciously quiet. Shh. <laughs> Guys. Doors. There was there was Athenians quiet, quiet, quiet. That's because the Boeotians were hard at work getting their new invention ready. What has been said to be the first flamethrower. A lot of firsts. Yep. It was literally a giant tube in a cart that they would blow flames through using large bellows. So if you were like, if you saw it, if you were standing in front of it, very easy to avoid. Yeah. Because it's a, just a giant Step tube. Step to the side. That, yes. Um, I want to see. I wonder if it's like a train. Maybe you're supposed to run towards the fire alongside, not away. Could be. Yeah, look this thing up because it is, it's a flamethrower, certainly. Uh, it's big, but it is definitely it's quite big. Recognizable, I guess, as a flamethrower. It's cool. Yeah. Like we said, very cool, also very easy to avoid. But the Athenians weren't paying a ton of attention to what the Boeotians were doing. And again, their hubris got the best of them. What were they doing for two weeks? I think they were just in the temple. Just hanging out. Just like trying to figure out how the hell they were going to get out of it. The Boeotians attacked with their new fire tube, and the Athenians ended up running back to their ships to sail home, defeated, exhausted, and on fire. Boy, just botched that one. Yeah. Multiple city-states at this time started to try and create their own versions of the poop bombs and the fire tubes. They also started experimenting with what things burn well together. Huh. Nice, you know, pairings. Mm -hmm. In the 3rd century, just as Archimedes is designing his weird claws and mirrors, other parts of Rome are experimenting with something called automatic fire. Essentially, resin-based bombs. But, Great. Yeah. They are dangerous to make. They're incredibly unpredictable, but also, if done right, very effective. Just like this show. Exactly. <laughs> they would essentially combine resin, mm -hmm. sulfur, okay. ashes, yep. and other stones that are not flammable, but, you know, they're there. Probably... I imagine for weight. Percu maybe so percussive uh, nature, well, and too, if, it, if they're, if it like, shrapnel. blows, yeah. 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 But I, I'm, I'm guessing, too, it's just for weight. Yeah, maybe weight, A little too. oomph. And, and a dash a little of paprika. Style, maybe, yeah. A little heat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would grind and pound the mixture into a fine powder. Mm. This was dangerous because if it got too hot, it would ignite. Automatic fire was said to ignite even just on exceptionally hot days. And sometimes the heat generated by processing it into powder was enough to trigger it. Good. Friction. Yes. A quote from Julius Africanus in the third century said, one must pound it carefully and protect the face for it will ignite suddenly. Uh -huh. When it catches fire, one should seal it in some sort of copper receptacle. In this way, you will have it available in a box without exposing it to the sun. So if you have a copper receptacle nearby, you're going to want to use that. Yeah, I think you just don't want to, don't make resin-based bombs without a copper receptacle on hand. Rule number one. Where is your copper receptacle? Yes. Is it next? Is it beside you? Yeah. So obviously carrying copper boxes of actual just fire around, not super practical. Cool. Uh, the ideal state was to use the powder to create a paste and smear it on the east side of your enemy's buildings, tents, armaments, etc. 
When the sun rose, it would ignite the paste, burning everything to the ground. That's cool. Yes, that is. That's very, very cool. This is the basis for what will become Greek fire in the future. Hundreds of years had passed since people were advised to carry fire in boxes. Now the creation of this paste was a refined process with an added bonus. They had developed a version that did not actively extinguish when exposed to water. Naturally, an enemy of fire, water is. This is true, but now water has been taken out of the equation. Fire has no natural predators. Yeah, so it just, they need to have like a culling of fire now. A culling of fire sounds like a book you would find in the airport. Yes. Uh, The official recipe for the paste is tragically lost to antiquity. I would have loved to make some of that paste here in the office. I have it. We can can talk afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There are some theories for how they accomplished this. Most likely is that they were using early forms of petroleum products in their recipe. This would create an oil or grease fire that can burn in the presence of water as long as it has oxygen. This same reaction is the reason you don't throw water on your stove if it catches fire because, you know, you smother it. You cover it in something. Yeah. Um, also, don't put ice in a deep fryer. That's also, that can cause really? problems. Oh, yeah. Well, because, yeah, water and oil. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hot sense. oil. Hot like oil. Very cold water. Uh, Big yeah. problem. Again, enemies, hot yeah. and cold. Yep. Me, I, I I jump on there, I sit on the stove fire, and I go, <laughs> and then, yeah, steam comes out of my ears. But that puts out the it. fire. It's also the reason why tire fires can burn at super hot temperatures for long periods of time, which is why filling your home or workplace with tire fires is the most efficient and environmentally friendly heating solution. I like the smell of burning rubber. Yeah. I, I, sometimes I think sure. it's just me. But sure. A lot of people do. Well, yeah, it's like the smell of gas. I, I do it's love good. the smell of gas. It smells though. good. Yeah. yeah. No cap Yep. on the car. <laughs> Uh-huh. I don't let the cap on. I smell the gas. And I'm driving and I have the pump <laughs> hanging from the back. I have a tube going from my nose, uh, like in a still suit. Uh-huh. <laughs> we huff gas here. Is we, is, uh, well, not here. Here, yeah. At the gas station. No, at work and at, oh, okay. yeah. Now, the Byzantine Empire has death paste, and they have to figure out how to utilize it to the best of their abilities. To set the scene, Persia has been relentlessly attacking the Byzantines, and they were losing most of the Middle East and they were losing most of the Middle East to Arabic nations. They were being defeated on both land and sea when they created a pressurized nozzle to add to their ships. This is kind of the culmination of death paste and fire tube. Oh man, I saw them headline Warp Tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're great. They would use the pressurized tube to spray ships with death paste. Since <laughs> ships had nowhere to hide from the sun, they would ignite and continue to burn despite being surrounded by water. This would turn the ships into literal flaming blockades. This allows the Byzantine Empire to demolish their enemies' boats left and right and gain them some ground in the war. It was so successful that Emperor Constantine Porfiro Gennetos makes a pact with his son Romanos II to never ever reveal the recipe because, as it turns out, who do you think gave them that recipe? Um, maybe like Take a one cyan, wild guess. One wild guess? Okay, I mean, God, if I could really just go for it, I would mm-hmm. say just, just like a scientist that worked for them. No, no. Uh, it was the ghost of the first Christian Roman emperor, Constantine. That was my next guess. I figured. Wow. He's, the obvi- he's kind of an obvious choice of yeah. ghosts to come and give you. Uh, if I had to choose a ghost. Christian Roman emperor, Constantine. Constantine. Yeah, yeah. The use of Greek fire continues into the Crusades, but no one ever discovers the original recipe. They do discover similar ones, and it shows up in history under the name Greek fire all the way through the 1800s. 
In the 1800s, an Armenian man named Kavafian approached the Ottoman Empire claiming to have Greek fire, but he made the mistake of trying to negotiate a high-ranking army position in exchange for his brand of death paste. Uh, they didn't take the deal. The oh. Ottomans just poisoned him instead to prevent him giving death paste to anyone else. If they can't have it, no one can. Poor negotiating skills on Kavafian's Honestly, part. yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you can't just give it all away like that. You gotta, no, you but, gotta like say that someone else has the recipe. Yeah. And ask for a smaller possession. Yeah, yeah. Thus was the last recorded military use of Greek fire. Following the Ottomans, guns, missiles, and cannons were commonplace, and the need for very smelly fire was a distant memory. We should bring that paste back, though. Like sun paste? That could be fun. I'm just thinking about the prank applications. I'm interested. Yeah, yeah, I'm interested. Like, imagine you, you're, yeah, you're at your, your friend's house, and you just, while, he, while he's asleep, you cover him in sun, sun paste, yeah. and he walks outside, and immediately <laughs> ignites. Ignites, and he can't even if he gets in water that doesn't no, extinguish. He's yeah. still burning to a crisp. Oh my god, that would be one for the books. It would the be books of history, yeah, classic prankster <laughs> stuff. Anyway, that is our second bonus episode. We uh, got another one next week. Very, very exciting topic for the two of us. Oh yeah. Um, you can follow us at Ship Hits Pod. Uh, we have surpassed an incredible benchmark: four thousand three hundred and fifteen followers. Is that Twitter. true? That on is Twitter. Yeah, on Twitter. Oh, okay. I don't know what, about the other ones. What does that translate to in listeners? I guess four, two or three, three, whatever. Yeah, people, two or three people. Mm. Anyway, uh, tell your mom and no one else, and no one else. Yeah, Keep but make secret. sure that her, your mom tells her mom, who then tells her mom. Go to your and mom so on. and tell her that you know of an incredible podcast, but you will not give her the link to it unless you are given a high-ranking position in her in the organization. Army. And. Don't eat anything she makes you. No, no, no. <laughs> don't. Yeah, it's don't, poison. Don't imbibe any, it's poison. any mom uh, offerings. Yeah, so follow us there. Follow us everywhere. Instagram, TikTok, right? Where else? Um, Did you say all that? No, uh, yeah. I said okay. all that. Okay. I think that's well, it. Well, listen to what I said. You didn't thank listen, our writer and our editor. I'm going to. The show is written by, I'm doing it. Okay. The show is written by Paige Wesley. It's edited by Kelly Reynolds and Nick Schwartz. The art for the cover is by Stevie Jude. I have been innumerably Charlotte. Do you like that? Oh, yeah, I yeah. think you said, okay. I'm still Patrick, just regular Patrick. Yeah, creating weapons. Yeah. Uh, A man of shapes. May your shapes bleach, bleach. in these sands. Yeah. <laughs> Bones. Thanks, everybody. Bye.